Hello and welcome to this month's edition of the Culture File Debate and the question, are we at the end of travel or the beginning? Recent developments in the world of uh, germs have made us rethink travel, both short hops and long hauls. The checkpointization of our world and brand new travel essentials such as vaccine passports can't help but offer more messages to stay at home. And even before our present passage of turbulence, the demands of climate justice had already meant it was no longer possible to see travel as innocent, offsettable fun. But for travel media, some of these changes were a boon, where publishers had been watching sales dwindle, lockdown and aeroplane panic has created a market for reprints of classic travel writing, as well as for new journeys in armchair travel. Even virtual travel began to sound like a somewhat sane and somewhat viable option. Our guests this month on the Culture File Debate are all in the eye of the travel storm, creating or studying travel writing. Margaret Topping is Professor of French Literature and Visual Cultures at Queen's University, Belfast. She researches on travel, tourism and migration and is a contributor to the recently published Keywords for Travel Writing Studies. Hi. Dana Givens is a travel writer and lifestyle journalist currently based in New York. Her writing covers travel, culture, the African diaspora, and she's previously created Love and Passports, a podcast blending travel and fiction. Hi, everyone. The gentle author writes a blog called Spitalfield's Life. As he puts it himself, in the midst of life, I woke up to find myself living in an old house beside Brick Lane in the East End of London. And his writing explores the world outside his windows. Hello, greetings. Aaron Miller grew up in Brighton, but is now based in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado. He contributes travel writing to the Times of London and National Geographic Traveller. And his podcast, The Armchair Explorer, was named in the best travel podcasts of 2020 by the Guardian. Hello. So I'm interested in how all of you find yourselves in these areas of travel writing and creating travel media. So Dana, how did you first arrive at travel writing and was it was it a welcoming arena? What kind of brought you there in the first place? For me, I actually started very local. I started writing just about my neighborhood. I am born and raised in New York. Um, I was raised in Harlem. My family has lived there for about four decades. So I had a lot of stories to share from that perspective as a place that was a, essentially a tourist attraction for a lot of people around the world. And then from there, I went to school and I had a minor in studying cultural studies. So I always had a fascination about learning about new cultures. And that was really what drove me. I would start by just doing small trips and then growing from there. And I made sure to document everything I saw, everything I learned, and things that I wanted to learn more when I got back. And eventually those early writings were the foundation of my portfolio. And that's how I got started. Aaron, uh, you're on the other side of, you were originally on the other side of the Atlantic. How, how different is your journey into travel writing? You know, I had a bit of a funny one. I um, I used to work in the music industry in my 20s. And uh, I kind of left that, took a, a swift right turn and um, sort of blagged my way into travel writing, if I'm completely honest. It was something that uh, I kind of fell into, um, but it's something I've always been passionate about. You know, travel for me is is a really important part of our culture. It's an important part of our sort of well-being and what makes life meaningful. And I think COVID's really shown that up, right? When it's taken away from us, uh, we really feel that that absence. I write a lot about nature, write a lot about the outdoors and adventure, 
I guess I do travel writing because I want to inspire people to get out there and see the world. I think that's a really important part of society. I think we're all naturally explorers. We're all curious. We're all wanderers. It's, it's been an important part of our history. Art and science and so many of the good things in life grow from that. Uh, and so I, want, I just, I guess I wanted to inspire people to see the world, uh, you know, uh, understand different cultures and different people and, and maybe step outside of their comfort zone a little bit and and try things that they're that they're maybe not initially comfortable with but once they do it they become you know uh, it it kind of fills you up and gives you the confidence to try other things and and who were you reading at that stage that you realized there was this thing called travel writing gosh you know i was i was basically like an adventure magazine nut i used to read all of those a lot of the think people i still i write for now and um you know national geographic and wanderlust and all those places, um, and just sort of, you know, old mountaineering and climbing books uh, about the Annapurna and climbing the north face of the Eiger and all those old classic stories. And, you know, uh, you know, armchair travel or armchair adventure for me has always been about experiencing things that maybe you haven't experienced before or you wouldn't experience before you don't have access to. Um, and so I, I liked live, uh, reading about those big expeditions, those big crazy adventures, and dreaming about maybe, maybe one day doing them myself. Margaret, we, we hear there about Aaron and Dana's origin stories, but what is the origin story of the travel writer as a kind of discrete enterprise, uh, you know, not just a memoirist? I think what's interesting, actually, about some of the ways in which travel writing emerged and became a very popular genre is that it has been very much based in narratives and journeys associated with uh, colonial expansion with empire and I think some of those questions around travel narratives and power are some of the things that interested me and got me more and more involved in travel literature in my own field the ways in which the representation of other cultures is itself an exercise of political power and the ways in which travel itself can be an ethical undertaking and so I mean from the earliest days of, of travel I mean some of the, the the major expeditions even as early as 1798 you have Napoleon and his expedition to Egypt on which he takes a whole army of military personnel but also 150 experts and these are people who are going to catalogue the flowers, the fauna, the architecture, uh, the religions, the languages and so on and from that very very early stage what you got was this interconnection between travel, knowing the new country and through that having power over it so and I think that's one of the things that um, you know early travel writing emerged from. So even when we go into the kind of 19th century and see the emergence of travel writing as a hugely popular genre, it's still quite often associated with those narratives of power um, and possession. And it's really only in the mid 20th century you start to see travellers questioning that and writing in very different ways about the cultures that they're encountering and thinking about it less in terms of the privileged traveller and more about an equal democratic encounter with with the people encountered on the travel. So it absolutely has its origins in colonial expansion. Dana, when, when you got involved in travel writing as a mission, were you thinking that somehow there must be a way to escape those particular kind of roots of travel writing and how travel writing had been purposed? Absolutely. Um, as a black traveler, I have a nuanced experience when I go to certain countries, specifically as someone that is a black American. So my family are descendants of the chattel slavery that came here. And that gives me a very nuanced look at when I come into certain countries, how I am also 
viewed when I come into certain countries, both as a black woman, but I do come in, which is sometimes a, a privilege being American, depending on the country I'm in. And as mentioned before, a lot of these narratives have been centered around power, have been centered around people who have controlled the narrative and have narrowed it to make to see only one person. But my journey to China is going to be different from a white Americans for many reasons. For I am visibly different, I visibly stick out, but I also have a different cultural nuance. When I went there, I saw influence of my culture in their world, whether it was the music, whether it was the food they were interested in, the pop culture. And I've seen that in other countries. I also learned where my place is in the African diaspora. So you have also the histories of my community, others who have African ancestry, who have history in Canada, in France, in England, in so many other places. And you learn how vast are the history is. And unfortunately in America, that's important to me because as a Black American, we are taught that our history is limited, that it only started when it came here. And that could be the furthest from the truth. So when I travel and I write these stories, I think about the reader who is like me and showing them how they're connected to these worlds, how connected they are in terms of their culture, in terms of their history, but also how there are other people like them there. It's not always these narratives, unfortunately, we see on mainstream. The gentle author, there is a character to what you write, which is about uh, your neighborhood and the people around you. And it's almost there that the world comes to visit you. You do examine other cultures and other people, but down Brick Lane. Do you think you're in a particularly fertile area or is that, can you even conceive of it as travel writing? Well, for me, the fundamental journey was from the country to the city because I'm not a city person. And when I came to London in 1981, I couldn't believe it that people didn't talk to each other in bus stops and that if you said hello to someone, they looked at you blankly. But I found that in the East End of London, it was the only place where you could talk to people. Um, so I felt at home there right from the start. That was in 1981. So really writing was an opportunity or an excuse to talk to people. When I started, I went to the landlady of our pub here, uh, Sandra Esquilant, who's the spiritual leader of the community. And I said, I'd like to talk to some people and interview them about our culture here and our community. And she gave me a list of names and I went to each of them and said, Sandra's told me I need to interview you. And all those people were very obliging. And I also found that in shops, if you go into a shop, people usually will allow you to interview them because they think it's maybe some kind of good for business, some kind of advert. But then after I'd written about 600 different shopkeepers, what I found was that they all had things in common. And then I found those shopkeepers were meeting 200 of them and forming a union called the East End Trades Guild, which was to fight for the rights of small shopkeepers in the East End. So I found that by writing about the stories of the people here, I became at the centre of um, a really elaborate and complex community. Margaret, the views of travel writing we're, we're hearing there are reflected in what's been happening in the Academy as well, in the sense that we've begun to understand travel writing as a very distinct sphere with particular power representations in it. How much do you recognise the, the, the vision of travel writing that you're hearing from our, our contributors here? 
Um, very much so. I think some of those questions around um, power and privilege and how we can begin to disrupt those that Dana was talking about are, are very much part of the theoretical underpinnings of the study of, of um, travel writing in the academy. And I think what's very interesting in the context of COVID is the ways in which you know, power and privilege and the possibility of free movement that we have all enjoyed as ultra-mobile cosmopolitans has actually been curtailed in ways that is actually unrecognisable to us and in some ways is then creating a, perhaps potentially a new sense of community, a new sense of empathy or compassion for those for whom travel has been uh, more restricted. Very struck again by what Dana is saying as, as you know, in that intersectional space of travelling as a black American. And on the one hand, you have the privilege of being the Western American traveller, but on the other hand, um, an association perhaps which might have different resonances. And lots of cultural theorists have talked about that increased you mentioned checkpointization at the start. That's precisely the sort of idea that has been explored in contemporary travel theory. And I think it's been turned on its head in the context of COVID in ways that actually make us all feel what it is to be the objects of checkpointization. You know, we've seen in travel writing a very significant focus on different sorts of travellers as being more the agrophile traveller, as is often described. And maybe, you know, there are, our white male adventurer is, is the, the kind of typical image there versus what's often called the claustrophile traveller, who is doing as the gentle author is doing, you know, looking at a very familiar close community uh, through different lenses. Again, I think COVID has forced us away perhaps from the agrophile um, adventure and more towards the claustrophile perspective. So to me, it's very interesting that a lot of the theoretical shifts um, that we've seen in the study of travel writing are actually being borne out in very interesting ways through the practice of travel in the COVID context. Yeah, we, we, we certainly can't avoid COVID. The gentle author, I, th I think this is, I, I mean, it seems a, a real issue for you in that you like to get particularly into the streets and random encounters, I mean, which are part of everybody's maybe ideal travel experience. But all of that, the um, happenstance that travellers might enjoy and even seek out is, is kind of, uh, has been lost over the past 18 months. Well, uh, for example, with us, I mean, my work's become very political in the sense that it's been about representing voices within the community. And one of the things that happened during COVID was that people began to realise that local shops were really important. So one of the things I was doing each week was publishing a list of the shops that were open so people would know where to go. And it brought all that kind of thing back to life here. Uh, we also found that we had a, a massively increased readership during the COVID period because alongside all the apocalyptic mainstream news media, there was a real hunger for stories about daily life and about a texture that wasn't so epic, that people wanted to know how the people were living. Dana, how has what you're trying to do as a travel writer changed? I mean, I was reading some recent pieces about you that have that kind of uh, super glossy travel feel about some uh, maybe location we might end up in the Maldives and, and, and live in paradise. Is that um, going to kind of reappear as a travel writing? I mean, I think that the piece I read was framed as this is the aspiration of getting out of lockdown. But I wonder, are you feeling from editors uh, a sense that people require something different from travel writing? writing now and do you feel it yourself i would say rather than different they want to diversify um for example luxury travel has seen an increase because those that can afford are actually buying more they the experience now is not just to get the biggest suite in the hotel the experience is to buy out the hotel and be in complete privacy we saw trends for example in travel 
it's midway through 2020, I had did a report that showed that private jets had seen a huge increase in flights and in new clients because there's people that still were traveling, whether it was for their own leisure going against restrictions or because of necessity, they still were running companies that just required them to travel. So I think it's considering that there are very different markets in travel and it's very hard to blanket to give a one-all solution and catering to those different markets, especially in mainstream publications. And that feeds into kind of the problems that we have with travel in terms of climate, because we, we, I mean, we're sort of scouting around it. Sometimes we'd like to get back to the way we used to travel, but in in other ways, that seems like a foolish idea. And we, we have now the opportunity not to do that. Margaret. Yeah, I think this is a really difficult one. And I think, you know, everyone has been talking today about the ways in which there, it is possible to have that sort of fully embodied rediscovery of your local community um, in ways that are intellectually challenging, ethically challenging, physically challenging, and can also begin to create a new sense of community. So in a sense, the narratives around globalization as being a very positive force that enables us all to be traveling around the world as these ultramobiles, maybe it has in some ways that that day has passed. I think for me, the the concerns are sometimes around how does one have a so-called authentic experience of travel in a virtual context uh, when you're looking at a culture which is fundamentally different from our own. And as I say, travellers like Nicolas Bouhi are talking about that as a really challenging encounter with oneself as as well as with another. And that that is not something that can happen in a virtual environment. Aaron, have you tried virtual experiences? I mean, I know you talk to a lot of people who would be creating the content for for these kind of experiences. Uh, is, is there a sense that there that we are on the borders of something uh, useful in terms of a virtual travel experience? Well, you know, I think that old travel writing has been a virtual travel in some way, right? We've always been tra- traveling vicariously, whether it's through a writer or a podcaster or, or a videographer. Um, and that hasn't changed much. The, the the format may be evolving. I personally, and I, you know, I create content that I try and make as, you know, imaginative as possible. And, and people might call that virtual travel in some ways. But, you know, I, I don't think it will replace real travel because no matter how kind of open you try and be with your perspective, it's still your perspective. It's still, you're still traveling through someone else's eyes. And one of the joys of travel and, and what, you know, where you get the most juice in some ways is you engaging it, you deciding your own uh, viewpoints on a place and a destination. And, and I don't think that you can recreate that with virtual ra- travel in the same way. And whether or not it's, you know, related and helpful to climate change, I think it's a, a tricky question, obviously, air travel and, and, and all those things are, are uh, damaging to the climate. I think that over travel in certain places is very damaging. So I think it comes down to awareness. You know, there's there's definitely certain places in the world that conservation in Africa is uh, absolutely linked to positive and sustainable tourism right now. Um, and many of the people involved with that think that's, um, you know, for the short term, one of the, the key solutions for some of that. So I think it's it's a balance. There's difficulties with it all. But, you know, as travel writers and travel editors, I think that um, there's a responsibility to choose stories that are highlighting those positive aspects and directing people towards those positive aspects. You know, travel, writing, uh, publishing is, is so much often about what's new, what's happening now, you know, what's the hot thing. Uh, and it's really led by that. Um, but I think that, you know, we should be leading also with 
where is travel needed right now? You know, there's the buzzword is regenerative travel. You know, what are the ecosystems that, that need tourism right now? And Margaret, this idea of regenerative travel, in a way it's sort of that kind of neoliberal idea that if we just use our pounds and uh, euros in the correct way, then, then everything we do will be positive. And I, I wonder uh, how that strikes you. I, I think this is, I mean, there is a, a very significant debate around what has increasingly been called charity tourism or voluntourism, and again seen as a you know a, a, an ethically thorny um, area of endeavour. I think you know what has been said there around areas which are absolutely dependent on tourism um, for their future sustainability is a, a very strong um, case to be made for contain, continuing to have tourism into those areas. I think the other question, the other concern, sometimes maybe this is a very academic concern around not travelling into these areas but only in, encountering them in Know, virtual formats is that we still have a tendency then in doing that to replicate the sorts of self other dynamics that you know which we did see in the colonial era era when the cultural other is very much seen as a, as a kind of a spectacle to be consumed so i think and those are very kind of um, abstract in some ways academic concerns but i think there is something about not uh, reducing certain cultures to spectacle for a privileged uh, armchair traveller to view. I think the other question that colleagues have on the call have, or other panellists have mentioned is around actually um, tourism is not always exploitative of local cultures. It's actually a means for them to be entrepreneurial and to um, plough money back into the local economy, which actually then can uh, go into kind of sustainable development. So there has been uh, quite a lot of work done on these questions of charity tourism and volunteerism. And I think that the point that has been made around the kind of attentiveness of travel writers, attentiveness of travel um, companies, and a lot of the companies who are organising these sorts of trips, particularly for young people and for gap years, are now becoming increasingly alert to the sort of ethical considerations of what happens when you go into another country and making sure that, A, you're not having a... Um, a negative impact on the ecosystem and be that there is a positive return and that it's not simply again about replicating the kind of as you said the neoliberal view of I'm, I'm going as a as a young western uh, person who's about to go off to college and I'm going to do something good for a year before I do that so I think that sort of ethical um, attentiveness has become much more um, pronounced in the work of country uh, companies that are supporting this kind of, of travel. I, th I think the gentle author has that kind of ethical attentiveness to to the, the area. I mean, I, I, it feels like something that should be replicatable for all of us to turn the experiences of our of our neighbourhood into something that we have uh, a duty maybe to uh, to contribute to. Do you, do you feel that duty, gentle author? You are never tempted to uh, to turn that eye or that that uh, methodology you've developed on other places, are you? Well, I don't know it. I do it because this is where I live and because I'm part of it and because there's no boundary for me. I'm not like a journalist who does a story and then goes away. I'm here and I, once I've written about those people, then, uh, then I know them. And uh, so it's a kind of curious experience for me because what's happened is, is that my relationship to the city now equates to the relationship I had to people around me when I was a child in Devon, because if I walk down the street here, everybody's leaning out of windows or turning around and waving and saying hello. And so for me, that that's the kind of uh, the beauty of it is, is that feeling of being connected to so many people and so many different kinds of people and being able to bring everybody together in a common cause. I wonder, is that sense available to, to the other uh, travel writers here? Dana, do you, you know, what sense do you carry the people you've met with you when, when you return home? 
Honestly, that's what informs my story the most. And that's what I enjoy the most about travel reporting is the people I meet. Um, as someone, usually I'm always having my phone and recording with me. And I enjoy recording. Usually my favorite part is listening back to those conversations because then I get to remember what I learned and usually just the time we got to spend together. So for me, I feel like I have a responsibility to all those people I interviewed um, because they trusted me with their story. And not only did they trust me, they did trust me to deliver it in a way that not only informs my audience, but actually, and hopefully for, makes them carry carry something invaluable away from them that they learned about these people, whether they have the opportunity to go to this place and visit for themselves, or they're simply reading to make themselves informed. So for me, I think about that a lot, honestly. I don't want people to feel like I just left. And then even if we may never physically see each other again, I did value the fact that you took your time out to tell me this story. So I feel like I have a duty to now share this story and tell the world about the beautiful things I learned about this community through the locals I met. I think that's a value for travel writing that it's uh, hard to beat, trust repaid. You know, we talked a lot about the role of the travel writer, you know, the perspective of the travel writer and where that comes from and how we need different perspectives. Um, but we didn't, you know, I'm not sure we really covered um, the effect of the travel writer, you know, that, um, and this maybe relates to some of the positive aspects of travel, you know, that, that counter some of the, the negative aspects. Mark Twain famously said, you know, travel is the antidote to prejudice, bigotry and narrow mindedness. You know, we're all born in these little boxes and these cliques and uh, we can, you know, if we never have the opportunity to learn about other cultures and experience other places, then we can think that those ways of thinking and those morals and ways of being are set in stone. And I think when we travel, we start to realize that there are many different ways of thinking and being and existing in the world. And I think that opening of your mind is an incredibly important aspect. And not everyone can travel, but I think that if we can transmit a little bit of that to people, then uh, that's a positive force. And I think travel is, um, on a personal level, a very powerful thing, a very meaningful thing. But on a societal level, I think it's a really powerful and important thing too. Margaret, I mean, that, that what Aaron says there is that kind of ideal positive view of travel and and travel writing and and how it can communicate other other lives and other ways in the world but that's not the dominant feeling about travel writing is it no i think that's right and i think some of the points that dane and the gentle author are making towards the end are really important ones about actually this the shift from intercultural encounter to interpersonal encounter and the ways in which that actually taking the time to have conversations with people, to to gain their trust. I mean, I think the idea of trust came through in both what Dana and the gentle author said, that actually giving the people themselves a voice is something that has, I think, marked one of the most significant shifts in some of their theoretical thinking about what travel writing can do, uh, moving from an, a, a time of kind of domination and possession where uh, cultures were and people of those cultures were associated with national stereotypes in a very, very dominant and obvious way to a much greater shift towards interpersonal encounter, taking the time to talk to people, asking their permission to take photographs of them, having the conversation and the um, 
say a one-to-one which is actually about I think as Dana was saying it's that that shows that people are not fundamentally different that they are in fact the same sort of sense of human values empathy compassion and, and that's very much the shift that we've seen in, in a lot of travel writing in the last 100 150 years a shift away from uh, reinforcement and confirmation of cultural stereotypes to a sense in which actually this supposed other is not terribly other at all. It's these are people just like us with hopes, aspirations, and uh, and anxieties. So I think the interpersonal dimension that was just coming in at the end uh, was really important, and the role of the travel writer and the traveller as someone who is gaining trust. Interestingly, in recent travel scholarship, the term travelee has been introduced, which is a terrible term, but it is actually about recognising that it's not just about the traveller, it's about the person who is encountered on the travels and making sure that they have their voice. So it's been a recognition in the scholarship that this is as important a person in the equation as as the traveller. So we can all be travellees then, can we? We can be travellees, yeah. absolutely. Well, thank you all, our panel of travellees on this month's Culture File Debate, Margaret Topping, Aaron Miller, the gentle author, and Dana Givens. Now back to our armchairs. It's an honour. Thank yes, you. Thank you. Take care. Cheers. Nice Bye. to meet you guys. Thank you. Take care, everybody. Bye.